Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. As long promised, we will move on to Tachanun today. Without further ado, a couple of words of preamble first. So one of the modern commentaries on the Sidur that I read uh, says, you know, Tachanun is out of fashion. It's out of style. It's um, n- not in keeping with the temperament of our modern times for a lot of people. It's basically a supplication where we say, God, we're terrible, we're bad, please forgive us, we've sinned. Um, if I can sort of caricature what Tachman is about. And um, uh, this was kind of a, I'm going to call it a, a style of religious anthropology or theology that was very characteristic of, you know, a thousand years of Jewish history. And for some people strikes the modern temperament as um, not the note that we instinctively feel like sounding. In fact, the reform movement has dropped Tachanun entirely. I believe in most reform Sidurim, there's no vestige of Tachanun. Um, So I just want to, so Thing number one is just sort of to acknowledge that and put that out there. And then part of what that means is that um, I encourage people, people meaning you all, us all, to kind of find our own way into Tachanun if we're able to. And um, uh, this may not apply to some of you. Some of you may say, well, Tachanun, it's fine. It's an organic part of the davening and I've never had any trouble with it. Uh, religiously, and I don't know what Havivi is talking about by saying that. Um, but I think a lot of people have some difficulty with it. The idea of Tachanun goes back, probably the core, um, to um, a good 2,000 years. The Tosefta, a Tanaitic source, so time of the Mishnah, says, and after the Amida, a person, remember we had the passage in, in Tractate Brachot about Rabbi so-and-so used to say the following after his Amida, and that's where we get Elohim This is a totally separate passage, unrelated to that, where it says, and a person should, after, the, um, after their prayer, which means after the Amida, they should say Dvarim. They should add words. As much as they want to, even as long as the Vidui of Yom Kippur, the confession of Yom Kippur. In other words, after the statutory prayer, a person should add their own individual prayers to God as much as they want to, which means originally Tachanun, or I'm going to call it the Tachanun slot, okay, was meant to be the individual's personal, private, we could call it spontaneous prayer, ad hoc prayer, Um, like other things in the Sidur, uh, a version of the ad hoc spontaneous personal prayer was committed eventually to writing. And then all of a sudden it became something that everyone has to say. I'm going to put it in quotes. Everyone in air quotes has to say. And in fact, that's not true. Tachanun is just 
the way it's come down to us as to what the individual personal supplication is after the Amidah. And so one might say, again, I am not your halachic decisor. I am not your posek. Consult your local rabbi if you want an answer to this question. But you might say to your local rabbi, well, what if I wanted to skip Tachanun entirely and say my own individual prayers? Would that be halachically okay or would that make sense? So I'm not going to answer that question for you. I'm just saying, historically, this was the slot where people would say their individual supplications. Um, and I guess the medieval tradition, which added more and more things to Tachanun, took this statement of you add as much as you want, even as long as the vidui of Yom Kippur, very seriously, because then we've ended up with the seven paragraph Tachanun before Tachanun on Mondays and Thursdays, which is really, really, really long. Um, and I'll have some ideas about that as we, go, as we go along. So we have a slot that originally was um, for individual personal supplication. The original, the earliest name of it seems not to have been Tachanun, but Nifilat Apayim, falling on your face. So some of the early medieval halachic sources say, and after the Amidah, a person falls on their face and says whatever supplications they want to say. Um, this probably goes back to temple times when after the Kohanim blessed the people and made the sacrifice, the people, or, or maybe made the sacrifice and then blessed the people, um, the people would then actually in the temple, the regular people, regular non-Kohanim people who were at the temple for, happened to be there for that morning service, would actually prostrate themselves fully like, you know, face, hands, and feet down on the ground and knees, um, which was called hishtachavaya. There are, uh, there's a discussion in the sources about different kinds of bowing, okay? And uh, hishtachavaya, which we in modern Hebrew would call bowing, was defined as what, what, what we would call full prostration, what some people do at the Aleinu uh, service on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, as well as during the Avoda service on Yom Kippur. Okay, full prostration. So this section came to be called... Nif- focus. Hold on. This We're session came to... Please. Someone Someone needs to mute, please. That's me. Okay, thanks. Um, so this section uh, came to... Was called... This section after Amidah was originally called Nefilat Apayim, falling on your face. It had a supplicatory flavor to it. It was meant to be um, individual and private and not communal at all. So that's the original purpose of Tachanun. Um, formally, F-O-R-M-A-L-L-Y, formally, the prayer service is over. Right, there are four sections to the service: Birchot Hashachar, the morning blessings, which were originally said at home, which eventually in the Middle Ages came to be moved into the synagogue; Psuke de Zimra, Psalms of Praise, which is the warm-up to the real deal. The real deal consists of Shema and its blessings and the Amidah. Right, so the core halachically of prayer is two things. Shema with its attendant blessings and the Amida. So four sections. Um, and then um, 
the, the core statutory prayer is over. And the sources said, but, you know, before a person dashes off, they should linger and say their own private supplications uh, in a section called prostration. So that's kind of the core history of Tachanun. We know that different pieces were added to Tachanun through the ages. And for example, we Ashkenazim, I shouldn't say we Ashkenazim because I'm half Yemenite, but, but in our, in Temple Beth Am, uh, Ashkenazim say Psalm 6, which we'll take a look at. Sephardim say Psalm 22. They picked a different Psalm, right? So there was a lot of fluidity um, in these prayers for a long time until once again, sadly, we've been done in in all our spontaneity by the printing press, right? Once we have the printing press and everyone has a sidur in their hand, then there gets to be a psychological perception that these are the correct words to say these, these words and only these words. Um, and so uh, people feel like, you know, they, they have to say them, quote unquote, have to. Okay. So we're going to take a look at Tachnon. I think what we're going to do, our order is going to be, it makes more sense to me not to start from the beginning, but to um, start with what I will call the core Tachanun that we say every day. Then later we'll go on to the Monday, Thursday editions, which will include the seven paragraph Tachanun. Um, and I'll also mention some Sephardi editions, which are not in the Ashkenazi Sidur, which people might feel relevant, find relevant. And all that will take us some weeks. Michael Ozer is raising his hand. Please unmute, sir. <clears throat> Just a qu- uh, quick question, uh, Rabbi. Uh, so the Elohai Nitzor, in a sense, you've explained as a as an addition. Of course, this is very different, a prostration as yeah. opposed to yeah. personal. Um, yeah. Uh, can yes. you elaborate yeah. just a little bit? Yeah. So basically, I, you know, again, no one left us. The album does not have liner notes. I'll date myself there. Um, This album does not have liner notes. So we don't know about the committee discussions. In the the Talmudic sources, there seem to have been maybe what came down to us is two different versions of you should say your own individual thing after the Amidah. There's a core idea that you say your own individual thing after the statutory prayer. There's statutory fixed prayer that you're obligated to say. But, you know, when a person prays, they should also have their own personal prayer. In that long passage in Tractate Brachot that we looked at weeks, months ago, we have one description of that. Rabbi so-and-so after his prayer used to say this. Rabbi so-and-so after his prayer used to say that. Eleven of them, eleven instances of which we picked the last one, Elohai Nitzor. Not we, someone hundreds of years before us picked Elohai Nitzor. A different... Talmudic source says, and after the Amidah, a person should say dvarim, words. And we also have a tradition that in the temple, there were people prostrated themselves. So what we ended up with pretty early, by which I mean by the 8th century, by the earliest manuscript Sidurim, Seder of Rav Amram and Rav Sadia, is we ended up with two different versions of your individual spontaneous prayers. 
one version is the Elohai Natsur, and another version is Nefilat Apayim. So we might say that these are two descendants of the idea that you say your own individual prayers after the statutory prayer, right? Um, and I'm not aware, there might be, but I am not aware, maybe because I haven't delved into it enough. Uh, are there halachic discussions that say, well, if you said the Elohai Natsur, do you really need to say Tachnun? If you say Tachnun, do you really need to say Elohai Natsur? So I don't know about that. You know, pretty early on, they both came to be accepted. So you could say we have two parallel interpretations of this tradition of adding your own prayers after the fixed statutory prayer. And we ended up with both of them. Yes, Mike Harris. May I comment on your introduction to this? Whole sure, talk? sure. Um, I had pretty much the exact opposite reaction. Uh-huh. When I was a, a kid or a young adult. If anybody would ask me what Yom Kippur was, and I would explain to them the Day of Atonement and what that, what I thought that meant, and I was always embarrassed by the thought that it seemed so chutzpah that we would have one day and atone, and the rest of the year ignore ignore what we've done. And and I was so relieved when I got old enough to discover that we had Tachanun and we had the the. Uh, uh, a prayer in the in the uh, Amidah, the, the weekday Amidah, that covered this, and I felt so much better by it. So rather than being turned off by it, I actually exult in it. I love it. Thank you, Michael. By the way, just to say a little note, uh, to look ahead, in the Sephardic, or Mizrahi, um, it's also Sephardic, you know, Hasidic tradition, uh, Tachnun, they say um, Ashamnu, Every day is part of Tachanun. I do too. Right. So uh, I actually, just to say my own personal thing, I'm not your posake. I'm not your religious decisor. I'm not telling you that this is halachically okay or not. I'm just speaking as a private citizen. I personally don't say the seven paragraph Tachanun on Monday and Thursday because it does not speak to me. Um, I actually say Ashamnu on Monday and Thursday. So, you know, so I feel like, oh, I'm half Sephardi, so I can get away with that. So I basically, what I add on Monday and Thursday is just the Ashamnu, which has a, you know, little three line introductory paragraph and a, um, and a closing line. And then after the Ashamnu's, I add um, my own personal sins of things that I'm working on, which I usually the last few years set as my intentions uh, every year in the high holidays. What are the things that I need to uh, work on this year. So I'll try to add those to the Ashamnu after the letter Toph. I'm not clever enough to fit them in alphabetically, nor am I clever enough to fit them all in under one of the 22 Ashamnu letters. Uh, so I'll say that on Monday and Thursday. Um, and then I go on to regular um, Put Your Head Down by Yomer David Elgad. And we'll talk about the, the, the uh, when do you put your head down and why do you, uh, sorry, and when do you put your head down and how do you put your head down? And we'll, we'll get to all those things when we sort of line it up in detail. Annette, I think you wanted to say something then, Larry. Uh, I wanted to ask a question. Uh, I, it seemed to me uh, that when I ha- had the Talmud class uh, at uh, my home, that uh, there was a, a tale of there was one rabbi's wife that was just terrified of him saying Tachanun. Yes. Uh, uh, she did 
everything. Yeah. Oh, you know, oh we don't say it today. Right. Or we right. Do this or we don't do that. Correct. And uh, and uh, and can you refresh my memory? Yes. <laughs> yes. I I can't tell you the source off the top of my head. I'm sure it's in Brachot. Um, but, it is Brachot. Uh, yes. But um. Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Gam- Rabban Gamliel had a run-in with each other. They had a conflict, and they were brothers-in-law. Rabbi Eliezer was married to Ima Shalom. That was her name. And she was Rabban Gamliel's brother. And she knew that when a great sage um, um, does talk, when a great sage supplicates God, God listens. And so... She said to, she knew that they were in a fight, in an interpersonal argument, and she said, don't say, um, I don't want you saying supplications. Tachanunim is what it is called, supplications. Um, and she would always interfere with him saying, with, uh, distract him at that point in his service. One day, a poor beggar man came to the door yes, asking sir. for alms at that moment. She was distracted and went to the door to give the beggar person alms. He did Tachanun. She comes back into the room and says, what are you doing? Do you want to kill my brother? And then word reached them that her brother had died at that moment. In fact, meaning Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Gamliel, who were rivals, and Rabbi Eliezer was in a snit um, uh, and was angry. uh, And this moment, you know, when he... Maybe wasn't at his finest, but might have said, Hashem, you know, I hope you have it in for that brother, no good brother-in-law of mine. A phrase, a phrase that many people have said through the centuries, that no good brother-in-law of mine, right? I hope you have it in for him and he gets what he deserves. And, um, and his prayer was answered and Rabban Gamliel was struck dead at that moment. Yes, a very lively story. That's the story in it, right? So it's the power of a great sage who says tachanunim. When a great sage says tachanunim, supplications, God listens. Therefore, great sage really needs to be very careful about what they say in their tachanun. And of course, there are other many other stories in the Talmud about um, rabbis who had all sorts of, let us call it power, power to curse, uh, power to resuscitate people from the dead. There's all kinds of, you know, Stories like that. That's the, t- actually, that's the tale. Actually, yeah. I had a T-shirt uh, that uh, said on it, "Save it for Tachanun." Okay, like that. Save it for Tachanun. Anyway, <laughs> I think I, I think I got the story right, and if I quoted some of it wrong, I'll, I'll look at it between now and next week, it's and I'll okay. make sure it's to get it. Right. Okay. Wait. Is there another? I I might have seen one more hand, Larry. Sorry, you're, you're, I have a question. I have a yeah. question for you. Yeah. For, for you. As a, you're a psychologist, right? Not a psychiatrist. No, I'm a psychiatrist, but that's okay. So you can ask me if I say, oh, I don't know anything about that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a psychiatrist. Then I'll tell you that. But I think that, um, I think that, that one of the themes that I often hear is that people shouldn't beat up on themselves too much. And Uh that many of us are, are, are want to do that. Um, and that we should hold ourselves in higher regard. Do you have an opinion as a psychiatrist about whether it's actually good for all? If we take, if we take Kaufman very seriously and we, 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 we read and understand what it is that we're saying to some extent, aren't we actually beating up on ourselves perhaps a bit too much? 
Oh, gosh, I don't know anything about that at all. I'm just a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. But <laughs> but, in, but in brief, I mean, my brief answer would be, you know, they're jokes also. I mean, it's a longer, more complicated discussion. You know, there are all kinds of jokes about Jewish guilt, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to say, you know, Judaism basically teaches us that um, we are all flawed. We all could do better. Doing more mitzvot is aspirational. No one is ever at the finish line. No one should ever say, I have done well enough in terms of, uh, again, I'm, I'm not talking about your grades or your bank account or pleasing your one's parent. I'm talking about um, mitzvot, okay? Everyone has averas. Everyone has sins. Everyone needs to contemplate their averas and try to do better. If you want to call that guilt, I guess you can call that guilt. Um, that's a core idea in Judaism. That's different than, but but part of that core idea of Judaism is that also that teshuva is always possible, right? So um, I made a terrible mistake in the past, and I can never make up for that, and I I'm dwelling in that, and that makes me feel depressed and awful. Maybe let's call that pathological guilt or the kind of guilt you are talking about. That's probably psychologically not healthy, but Judaism has a core idea that I could do better, I should do better, and doing better is possible. Everyone has the power of tshuva within them. So I guess that's just kind of my preliminary answer. Does anyone, anyone else who can say that or has anything else to say that's more profound than what I just said, please feel free to raise your hand and say it your way or give your answer. Shut them up. Okay. So let's keep that in mind. Okay. Without further ado, let's look at a little text, shall we? So I'm going to page. So I'm not going to do Vuhu Rachum, the seven paragraph Tachnun. We will come back to that. And the seven paragraph Tachnun, by the way, has its own history and story separate from the rest of Tachnun. That's why it's not said every day. And so I'm going to go to page 134 in the Sim, page 62 in the Slim, starting with, oh, not 134, I'm sorry, um, 132 at the bottom of the Sim, page 62 in the Slim. Um, Shabbat morning services, Temple Beth Am for the people on the live stream. They actually have to announce pages in three different Siturim, it's because there's the new one also, the Lev Shalem, very confusing. So, but I only have to announce two sets of pages, I think, because there is no Lev Shalem weekday yet. Is that right? I think that's right. Okay. Um, so we're starting with Vayomer David El God. That's where we're starting. Everyone with me? Yes. Okay. Um, and I'm, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do, I'll say a brief word about posture. The vestige of nifilat apayim, the vestige of falling on your face, because when we say tachnun, you're not supposed to prostrate, but the vestige of it that has come to be halachically the practice is you, you put your head down on your arm. You only do that if there is a Sefer Torah present where you are davening. So if you're davening in a minion and there is no Sefer Torah in the room, or if you're davening individually, you sit, by the way, you're seated through Tachanun, sorry, starting at Vayomer David El God, you are seated. 
up until a point where you're supposed to stand. I'll, we'll get to that when we get to that point, right? So seven paragraph Tachnon, you're supposed to be standing. Vayomer David God, you sit down. You put your head on your forearm. I always get this confused because I'm non-normative. I am a lefty. Um, it's you're supposed to be on your left forearm unless your trillin is on your forearm, your left forearm, which is what righties have. So righties fall on their right forearm in shachrit, but in mincha, when you don't have tefillin interfering on your left forearm, then you go on your left forearm. And if I said that wrong, anyone correct me, please. Again, I'm always confused about it because I'm a lefty. So as a lefty, I don't have to worry about shachrit and um, mincha being different. I'm on my left forearm all the time, right? Because my tefillin's on my right. So I fall on my left arm in the morning because I don't have tefillin interfering, interfering and my left arm on uh, at mincha. But righties do the right arm in the morning and the left arm at mincha. Righties, did I get that correct? Thank you. Okay. Always hard for me to do psak halacha, right? To tell you how the halacha for righties because, you know, it's not in my head every day because I just do what I do as a lefty. Um, and of course, it's easier to do this if you have a chair in front of you, because, you know, then you just put your arm on the chair and it's a little bit harder um, if you are sitting in the front row or somewhere where you don't have a chair in front of you, where you just sort of, you know, do what I, you know, put your arm down, put your arm like this and bend your head. Okay. That's kind of the posture. So that is the vestige of hishtachavaya or prostration for Tachnun. That's what we do. And again, you all, you, you do from Vayomer David al-God, you're seated until we get to the standing point, which we will not get to this week. Um, and you only bend the head down on your arm if there is a Sefer Torah present. Sefer Torah embodies uh, God's presence in your midst. So you only actually really bow if God's presence is there as physically uh, symbolized by the presence of a Sefer Torah. Of course, we know Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is always everywhere. Uh, but the minhag is you actually physically enact the bowing only if there's a physical representation of God's presence in the form of a Sefer Torah. Okay. And what do you do on Zoom? Uh, on the one hand, you're part of the minion. On the other hand, you know, and the minion is taking place in the main sanctuary and there's a Torah there. On the other hand, the Torah isn't where you are. I, I would say you have to ask your rabbinic decisor what you should do, and I will not tell you what to do. Okay. Cause I don't know the answer because we've only had zoom because we've only been doing this for, you know, almost two years and we haven't worked all the wrinkles out yet. Okay, so we're going to go with Vayomer David al-God. That's where I am. Everyone ready? Okay, quote from the second book of Samuel. David said to God, God meaning, as they say in English, Gad, G-A-D, who was a prophet. David said to Gad, right, God, I am very distressed. Um, I would rather fall in the hands of God because God is very merciful and I would rather not fall at the at human hands. What a weird way to open a prayer. Um, 
So if you look at Second Samuel, and it's also a version of it in the book of Chronicles, uh, King David, relatively late in his reign, um, orders a census of the nation. And God, who is one of his prophets, we're, we're familiar with the prophet Natan, Nathan. So if you remember the story of David and Bathsheba, um, you know, he adulter- adulterates with Bathsheba and uh, takes her as his wife. And then he gets scolded by God through a prophet. That prophet is Nathan, Natan. So Natan is a prophet in David's court, and God is also a prophet in David's court. So this is God. So um, David orders a census, and actually I think it's Yoav. He commands Yoav, his general, to um, do the census. And Yoav says, ah, why, why don't, don't do that? That's not a good idea. And we know that there's all sorts of um, halachic things as well as prejudices based on halachic things. I don't want to say prejudices. I'm going to take that back. Customs based on halachic things of not counting Jews, right? When you're looking for to see if there's a minion, you don't count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? So if you're very yeshivish, you might count not one, not two, not three, not four. I always got a kick out of that. And the other way is the verse Hoshia et Amecha, which has 10 words. Hoshia et Amecha, Ubarech et Nachotecha, Re'em v'naseim ad ha'olam. Hoshia et Amecha, right? So because a lot of people know that verse by heart um, and it has 10 words, you count people in the room, Hoshia et Amecha, Re'ech et So those are the two ways, the practices to count, not to count people one, two, three, four, five. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, it's because of the evil eye or something like that. Um, very from people won't even say publicly how many children they have. If you ask how many kids you have, super from people would say, you know, Baruch Hashem, I have, God has blessed me with children. Um, and they won't say the number because the number tempts the evil eye. Um, uh, the ayin hara, um, and maybe the pshat meaning of why it was frowned upon for David to do a census is because a census in ancient times usually meant one of two things, either taxation or war, right? So the reason that a king would count the people or the households is not because they wanted to publish in some almanac of statistics, okay? But they want to know the number of people, either for taxation purposes or for mustering of warriors. Either one was not such a good thing to do from the regular folks' point of view. And so um, uh, counting, taking a census was frowned upon. Um, we know that, and the, by the way, the medieval um, commentators all talk about various censuses that are ordered uh, in the Torah. And they say, well, how, do, how could God order Moses and Aaron to do a census? Isn't it wrong to do a census? And they all have discussions about that. And we know that in one passage that talks about a census, which is coming up soonish in a few weeks, both in Parshat Kitisa and Shabbat Shkalim, where it says, take a census, but the way you take a census is how, does anyone remember in Shemot? How do you take a census? The first census in the Torah to avoid counting people. One, two, three, four, five. Machatzida shekel. Right. Everyone gives a half shekel 
And then every adult gives a half shekel, probably adult male gives a half shekel. And then you count up all the shekels. We have 300,000 shekels. That means there's 600,000 adult males. Okay. So you don't count the people directly. Uh, gather yourselves in groups of tens and one hundreds and we will count you. Right. Um, rather everyone gives a certain amount of money and from the collection of the money, they do the pretty simple math. So that's a way of doing a census without actually counting people. And one of the interpretations is the reason it was done that way is because you don't count people. Okay. Any comment on that? So, so anyway, the story is David says, I want to do a census. Yoav, his general says, nah, you shouldn't do a census. If it says, no, 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 I really want a census. They do a census. Um, and then David is remorseful. He realizes he has done wrong. Uh, the prophet God says to him, you have done wrong. And God is going to send by doing this. And God is going to send you a punishment. And we have door number one, door number two, and door number three. Uh, I always forget the number of days and the number of years, but basically the choice is famine, disease, or sword, meaning war. And David says, I would rather choose the punishment that comes directly from God rather than the punishment of people. And I always wondered, well, doesn't that cover two of them? famine, and pestilence, as opposed to the sword. So the commentators talk about that also. But it turns out it actually refers to um, three days of plague. Plague, okay? Pestilence, plague. That should be a concept which is pretty familiar to us nowadays, I think, for the last almost two years. So there's a plague, and people die, and then... um, the Kohen, I don't remember the specifics, I got to go look back at the story, uh, rushes to a certain place with a censor, censor, incense thing, and stops the plague. That place where the plague is stopped in Jerusalem is the threshing floor of Aravna, the Jebusite, because that's where the plague line stops. That is determined to be a sacred spot. David purchases it from Aravna, the Jebusite, and that then becomes the site of the temple that his son Solomon will build. It's kind of the outline of the story. So the line in Tachanun, by the way, there are some people, some liturgy scholars, thinkers, commentators on the Sidur, who say every time there's a line taken from the Tanakh, there's a whole story behind that line, and you're supposed to think of that story, meaning when you read Micha Mocha right before the Amidah, you're supposed to, that's relevant for this week, Parshat B'Shalach, you're supposed to have in your mind, it's supposed to evoke for you the whole memory and feeling of the crossing of the sea. Anytime there's a line or a phrase from the Tanakh, it's not just nice words that some literary author said, oh, I like these words, I'm going to use these words because they fit. But rather, some author wanted to call up a memory of some 
story. Someone actually, I think it's Joel Lurie Grishaver, wrote a book called Stories We Pray. That's his book about the Siddur. Basically, and it basically goes through lines in the Siddur that are taken from the Torah, and it says, here is why the author took this line. Okay? So um, we might think, and we'll, we'll, we'll pause on this note, although I'll let people comment for a couple of minutes, we might think to ourselves, like, why did the author take this line to introduce Tachanun, right? So the author is saying, here is this time long ago when our noble ancestor, King David, was punished for a sin. And he said, I don't want my punishment to come at the hands of some other human beings, parentheses, because human beings aren't always so nice. They don't know when to ease up, close parentheses. I want my punishment to come directly from the hand of Hashem because Hashem's essence is merciful. How do we know that Hashem's essence is merciful? Later on in Parshat Kitisa in a few weeks, right? Where we have the whole Hashem, Hashem, El Hanun Vrachum. The core idea is that God punishes, but God's nature is essentially merciful. And so God relents and forgives or something like that. So, in Tachanun, where I am going to say, ah, I do so many sins, I am awful, Hashem, I hope things are going to be okay between the two of us. We open Tachanun with the line saying, I don't want any punishment to come from humans. I want my punishment to come from God's, because God, I know that you are merciful. That's what King David is saying, and that's the line that we are citing as the opening of our supplications. Now, I'm going to pause Mike Harris, then Larry, go ahead. Unmute. You got to unmute Mike. You're muted. Oh, I also noticed something interesting in the in the text. Knowing now that that uh, putting the head down on the arm is a vestige of prostration. Yeah. That that having uh, a Torah present, which is what causes us to do it, is because that brings God closer, I guess, to us. Yes. It, what I see here is, first of all, the use of the word napilah reminds us about putting our head down just by saying that. Uh huh. Yes. And secondly, we're acting we're acting out what we're saying because by putting our head down, we're we're literally falling into the hands of Adonai. Yes. So there are places in the Sidur where basically um, the, some people call it the choreography of the Sidur, which is kind of a fancy way of putting it. You know, the posturing that we do, standing sitting, steps, bowing, is an enactment of the idea of what we're talking about. And you can say it then intensifies psychologically the experience of what we're doing. And this is an enactment of we are, I am falling before, I am, I am, uh, I, I read some English source about this yesterday, who, who uh, used the analogy, people say, I fling myself at the mercy of the court right? Which people would say, I guess, because they would actually fling themselves on the ground, right? It's a metaphor, which contains a physical thing, which maybe once upon a time were, was physical. So we are actually flinging ourselves before God's mercy. That's what we're doing. And I like your framing of it, Michael, that maybe it's that the Torah is there, isn't just a physical representation of God, but the physical representation of God helps me, the individual davener, feel God's presence more fully, right? 
Um, good. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Larry, I think there was a Larry comment. I did, but I put it in the, uh, I put it in the comments. All right. Which is, it, it, when you said that Dave, the two of the three were, were, were divine. Yeah. And this is not facetious at all. Many, many of you maybe know Amartya Sen, who won the Nobel Prize for economics, uh-huh. but is also a, a great philosopher. He's also written a fantastic book on, uh, on justice. Uh-huh. But his, his greatest work as an economist was uh, a book on famines, where he shows that famines don't occur because of drought, but rather because of bad policies, at least the fam- famines that occur in modern times. If anyone okay. wants to discuss this okay. later. So, so maybe that makes famine be, uh, uh, that's a modern commentary on why famine is, comes from humans rather than from God. Exactly what I wanted to say. Got it. Okay. By the way, so there you have it, by the way, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 24. So little homework assignment, it's optional. I'm not going to quiz you on it between now and next week is go read two chapters, two, second book of Samuel chapter 24 on your own at home. And, uh, and, uh, you might say, oh, it's a good refresher, or you might say, gee, I never knew that story, one or the other, but I won't quiz you. Marshall, you have your hand up. Yeah, I just learned something recently about the the letter hey at the end of the word nipla na, or okay. nipla, uh-huh. and epola. Yep. That's, that's called a jussive, or it means let me not, or let us not fall, nipla, with a first-person plural, Yeah, and the... Other one, Epola, first person, singular. Yeah. May I not fall. Yeah. The, and the idea of just, justive is, um, and sometimes it's called the hortatory. Right. It's, it's, to ex, it's, ex, called the, it's called cohortative, not justive. Cohortative. Cohortative. Right. Yeah. Okay. And it, basi- and it basically means instead of, uh, in, Eng- in English, we don't have a conjugation that changes the word that uh, represents that. What, what, Represents that in English is instead, it means instead of saying, I will fall, in English we would say, oh, let me fall. That's the sense of it. Oh, indeed, I yes, should fall. Exactly. Right. It's only for first person in future. Right. So, so it's rather for me and anachno. Thank you, Verit. So rather than I will, it means, oh, I will, which either has the sense of, oh, I must, oh, I should, or oh, I'm really going to fall, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the sense of it in English. In English, we have to talk around it so much. Uh, Hebrew, biblical Hebrew in particular, as usual, is such a complex, c- compact language. So the simple version would be nipol, we will oh. fall, or epol, I will fall, but it's eplana or niplana. Okay, good. We'll end on that note. Always good to end on a grammar note. And everyone have a good day, be well, and God willing, I think we will plan to meet next Tuesday. That's the plan. Everyone stay healthy. Okay, bye. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.